A reading from the Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew. Matthew chapter 21, verses 28 through 32. Jesus said to the chief priests and the elders of the people, What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward he repented and went. And he went to the second and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, The first. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the harlots go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the harlots believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward repent and believe him. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Well, my beloved friends, for this 26th Sunday in Ordinary Time, Holy Mother Church has provided us with a very brief, a very short passage, pericope from Matthew's Gospel. Yet another parable unique to this Gospel, as was the case in our last episode, when we examined the parable of the workers in the vineyard. And here we have the same motif. We have a parable delivered by Jesus and a parable involving a vineyard. This was a common metaphor, as I pointed out in our last episode, and I would encourage you, those of you who are not able to take it in, to please do so, as it is going to provide much-needed context for our discussion today. Jesus, as I noted in our last episode, was in Judea. He had traveled from the Galilee to Judea on his final pilgrimage to the holy city where he would be crucified. And in our last episode, Jesus was preparing to enter into the holy city and he was giving certain instructions, delivering these sobering parables to his disciples on the theme of God's incredible mercy, his goodness, his kindness, his forbearance. And here we pick up in chapter 21 This parable is delivered following Jesus' triumphal entry into the holy city on Palm Sunday. Jesus is received as a king to shouts of Hosanna to the son of David, which is a messianic title. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And the multitudes gathered, the throngs of pilgrims who had come from far and wide. They acclaimed Jesus as their king, their long-awaited king and deliverer. They were quoting from Psalm 118, one of the Hallel Psalms, Psalms of praise. These were Psalms that that were sung with great jubilation for these pilgrimages to the holy city, for these great feasts. And they were preparing for the feast of Passover, Jesus' final Passover before his crucifixion and death on the cross. And so this is the backdrop. He enters into the holy city as acclaimed king of the Jews. He enters into the holy temple where he proceeds to cleanse it. He causes a great ruckus in the temple precincts as he overturns the tables of the money changers and drives them out with a whip of cords. This was a truly scandalous act on the part of our blessed Lord, which raises the ire of the religious authorities. Now, Jesus, following this dramatic action, 
his cleansing of the temple, his indictment of the religious authorities, the chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, the elders. He returns to Bethany where he spends the night in the home of Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, which was his custom. Bethany that was just outside of the holy city of Jerusalem. Jesus returns the following day and he is confronted by the chief priests and the scribes, members, representatives of the Sanhedrin. And they confront Jesus and they question him and his authority. And so in order to set the stage, because unfortunately, reading these five verses, our gospel passage, this parable, out of context, it's unfortunate. And that's why it's important for us to back up, establish the context, as I tell you all the time, context, context, context. Context is key. The only way that we're truly going to appropriate a deeper understanding of this parable is if we step back and examine the immediate context. Jesus has entered into Jerusalem. He has cleansed the temple. He has raised the ire of the religious authorities. And they are now questioning. They're confronting Jesus. And so I invite you to back up with me. Back up with me to verse 23. It states, and I quote, And when he, Jesus, entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I also will ask you a question, and if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. Let's stop there. And so they've come to confront Jesus. By what authority are you doing these things? By what authority did you enter into the temple and overturn the tables of the money changers? Who gave you that authority? Furthermore, he's teaching in the temple precincts as the rabbis did. By what authority are you doing these things? And Jesus, Jesus answers their question with a question. He declares, I also will ask you a question, and if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. Then he proceeds to bring up John the Baptist, who is now dead. He has been beheaded at the instruction, at the ordering of Herod. Now, we won't go into that backstory. I'm sure many of you are fully aware of what precipitated the martyrdom of John the Baptist, the precursor of our blessed Lord. He prepared the way of the Lord in the wilderness, and he preached a baptism of repentance. And if you go back to chapter 3 of Matthew's gospel, it states here in verse 5, Then went out to him Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Verse 7, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit that befits repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Close quote. Now, why do I share this with you? 
because context is key. Jesus is now going to ask them a question pertaining to John the Baptist. Jesus knows full well that these religious leaders, that they, many of them, went out to the Jordan to listen to the preaching of John the Baptist because John was a phenomenon. People were coming from far and wide to the wilderness seeking to repent of their sins. They were convicted by the preaching of John the Baptist. And this baptism, this baptism was a baptism of repentance. And many of these religious authorities came to listen to John's preaching, to evaluate his preaching, to see for themselves if John was the real deal, if he truly was a prophet. Many of them even going so far as to approach John seeking baptism, but John saw right through their hypocrisy. They were not interested in acknowledging their sins because they believed themselves to be holy, righteous. And John called them out for their rank hypocrisy, as is recorded in chapter 3 of Matthew's gospel. Furthermore, as John indicts them and calls them out for their hypocrisy, he begins to share with them, to proclaim that he is but the precursor of the one who is to come. He's speaking, of course, of the Christ. He has come, John, with a baptism of repentance. I baptize you with water for repentance, but one who is mightier than I is going to come, and he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So he is pointing forward to Jesus. Now we come to our gospel. With that said, with that context, Jesus then asks them, this is verse 25, the baptism of John, whence was it? From heaven or from men? And effectively, Jesus here is asking, he's putting these religious leaders on the spot, and he's doing so publicly. Now, those who are gathered around the throng of pilgrims, most, if not all of them, knew exactly who John the Baptist was. He was believed to be a prophet sent by God universally acclaimed as such. There was no doubt in the minds and in the hearts of the people that John was a bona fide prophet. But the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the chief priests, the scribes, they, they withheld their judgment. <laughs> they, being politically correct, they did not want to venture into, into that territory because to acknowledge the authority of John, the legitimacy of John's ministry, they would have been indicting themselves because John called them out publicly. He called them out for their hypocrisy. So if they were to legitimize, if they were to bless and acknowledge John the Baptist and his authority, that would have undermined them and their authority. You see, it was a catch-22 type of a scenario. And Jesus, Jesus who who was the object of their ire. They were seeking to entrap Jesus. Jesus turns the tables on them. He asks them a question that he knew full well they wouldn't be able to truly answer. Another catch-22 situation. And so he asks them, the baptism of John, whence was it? From heaven or from men? It says, and they argued with one another. That is the chief priests and the elders. They bickered and they argued with one another. If we say from heaven, he will say to us, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men, we are afraid of the multitude for all hold that John was a prophet. And so we see here 
that the chief priests and the elders, they understood full well that Jesus had entrapped them instead. A no-win situation. And so we read here in verse 27, so they answered Jesus, we do not know. We do not know. They shrugged their shoulders, threw up their hands, and they declared, we do not know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. That's a mic drop moment. Jesus had turned the tables on them. He had entrapped them, asking them a question that they could not answer. We simply do not know. Jesus effectively silences them. Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. You don't want to answer? Well, guess what? I won't answer you either. This is the immediate context for the parable that Jesus delivers in today's gospel pericope. I think it is critically important to establish this context because now we can enter into our gospel and understand the significance, what Jesus was doing, because our gospel pericope begins with a question. And now we can understand the significance of this question. We begin here in verse 28. Jesus begins... What do you think? This is a follow-up question. He's just asked them a question that they wiggled their way out of. They obfuscated. They declared, well, we don't know. They feigned ignorance. And they thought that they were scot-free. <laughs> they thought that they had escaped, essentially, the clutches of Jesus' interrogation. But Jesus is not done with them. <laughs> not so fast. He follows up with this question. What do you think? Then he launches into a parable. This is the genius of Jesus. They thought they could lay a finger, a glove on Jesus, and there's no way that Jesus can be manipulated. There's no way that Jesus can be entrapped. No. He declares here, a man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he repented and went. And he went to the second and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? This is the question. Jesus is delivering this simple parable concerning two sons, two sons of the same father. And he uses this example. The father sends both sons into the vineyard. And we note here that both sons react differently. The first son, his response to his father was no. It was a negative response. Now, it's important to understand. Remember, the fourth commandment is to honor thy father and thy mother, to show obedience and respect towards our mothers and our fathers. And this was baked into the moral code of the Jewish people, of the Israelites, and there are entire sections, when you survey the Old Testament, devoted to underscoring and highlighting the significance of this bond between children and their parents and the honor due to them. You can think of passages like the book of Sirach, chapter 3, verse 16, and which states, and I quote, whoever forsakes his father is like a blasphemer. Let me ask you, what was the penalty for blasphemy? Death. Death. Those who blasphemed incurred the death penalty. Whoever forsakes his father is like a blasphemer. 
Whoever breaks the commandment, and I would encourage you, just for the sake of context, in chapter 20 of the book of Exodus, verse 12, honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land which the Lord your God gives you. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land which the Lord your God gives you. And so honoring one's father and mother, the obedience to one's parents, the honor given to one's parents, this leads one to lead a long life, to to have long days in the land that the Lord God would ultimately give to the people of God. And to sin against one's parents, that incurred the death penalty. That was tantamount to blasphemy. Now, Jesus is delivering this parable. I say that just to once again provide you with some much-needed context because we find in the response of the first son, he says to his father, no, I will not go into the vineyard. And by responding in this manner, he is offending. He is sinning against his father. He is breaking the fourth commandment. And we'll see in a moment, actually both sons break the fourth commandment. But there's a difference between these two sons. The first son says, no, I will not. But we're told, going back to verse 29, but afterward we're told he repented and went. And the Greek term that's employed there for repented is metamelomai. Meta, meaning change. Melo, meaning care or concern. There was a shift here. He repented. He regretted his decision. He reconsidered. And that term metamelomai, it's different from metanoia. Many of you are familiar with that Greek term that stands for conversion, the changing of one's mind. But here, the term metamelomai, that points more to the reality of the heart. Just think of it. Initially, his heart was hardened. He said, no, I will not go into the vineyard. But then he repented. There was a change in his heart. Meta, change, melo, care or concern. So this is a significant nuance here. And this repentance, this factors significantly in this parable. Jesus is comparing and contrasting. The first son says, no, initially. I will not obey. I will not go into the vineyard. But then he repents. He has a change of heart. And he goes into the vineyard in obedience. So he breaks the commandment initially, but then he repents and he does the will of the Father. And this is in sharp contrast when you consider what Jesus says about the second son. Verse 30, And he went to the second and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Let's stop there. So the second son, he agrees to go. He affirms his intention to do the will of the Father, but he does not go. He, for all intents and purposes, pays his father lip service, but he does not fulfill the will of his father. In doing so, he breaks the commandment, honor thy father and thy mother. Jesus then questions. He puts forth this question to the chief priests and the elders for them to answer. He says in verse 31, which of the two did the will of his father? Now he is delivering this brief parable publicly. So everyone has heard the story. Everyone has heard this parable. And they all know the answer to this parable. It is clear as day. 
So there's no way that these chief priests and elders can get out of, can wiggle their way out of answering this question the way they did the first question that was asked. And they answer, verse 31, they said the first. They acknowledge that of the two, the first did the will of the Father. Because he repented, remember, he said initially no, but repented, metamelomai. He had a change of heart, and he went into the vineyard to do the will of his Father. And this points to the importance of, of works, of action, of doing the will of the Father. Jesus, upon hearing the response of these chief priests and elders, he goes in for the kill. He states, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the harlots go into the kingdom of God before you. Let's stop there. What is Jesus speaking of here? Well, remember, he's presenting before these chief priests and elders and all those who are present. Again, this is being done publicly. He's presenting before them the image of these two sons. These two sons who were commanded by the father to go into the vineyard. The first one who initially says no, he rejects the will of the father, but then later repents and goes into the vineyard. That is a picture, a portrait, an icon of the tax collectors and the harlots. Those who initially rejected the will of the father because of their sinfulness, because they engaged in sinful behavior and actions. They sinned against the father, but, but, but they repented. They later repented and sought to do the will of their father. This is the image, the picture of the first son who represents the tax collectors, the publicans, and the harlots. And this is a catch-all for public sinners who were despised by the likes of the religious authorities, who were vilified. And again, it's not that Jesus is somehow condoning the sins of tax collectors and prostitutes or harlots. No, but what he's pointing to is the fact that they, who initially said no to God and lived a debaucherous life, who lived an immoral lifestyle, they later repented. And specifically, as we're going to see in a moment, Jesus once again references John the Baptist. Who were the ones that went out into the desert to listen to John's preaching and who were baptized by him? Well, sinners, <laughs> sinners, prostitutes, tax collectors, those who were mired and steeped in sin, they went out into the desert and were convicted by the preaching of John the Baptist. And they submitted to a baptism of repentance. And they left the banks of the Jordan and they returned to their lives, but things were different. Their lives were changed because they had a change of heart, metamelomai. Whereas the second son in the parable, he represents the chief priests and the elders, the religious authorities. Jesus goes on to say, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the harlots go into the kingdom of God before you. For John, verse 32, came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the harlots believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward repent and believe him. Close quote. And Jesus puts them on full blast. He says, look, you saw, you saw for yourselves the ministry of John, the effectiveness of that ministry, how anointed he was in his preaching. 
that he led sinners to repentance. He led the tax collectors. He led the harlots, the prostitutes. He led public sinners to repent of their sins, to reform their lives in order to enter into the kingdom. You were witness to this. You saw for yourselves, and yet, even when you saw it, Jesus declares, you did not afterward repent and believe him. He's calling them out yet again for their hardness of heart. They give the Lord lip service. They give God lip service. Yes, Lord, we will do your will. But then they falter. But then they refuse to put that faith into practice. Words, but no deeds. This was, I hope you can appreciate it now, given the important context that I've established for you, how indicting this was, how convicting this parable was for these chief priests and elders. They were humiliated publicly by Jesus, and everyone knew it. Everyone knew it. He was calling them out for their rank hypocrisy. And furthermore, he's underscoring the importance of action, of doing the will of the Father, as opposed to just giving God lip service. And I can't help but be reminded of another very sobering passage from the Gospel of Matthew. If you turn with me to chapter 7, Jesus, in verse 21, these three verses represent some of the most sobering and convicting verses in all the Gospels. He declares in verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. That is a bold statement. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord. And I pointed out in previous episodes that the repetition of one's name or the repetition of one's title, this denotes familiarity. This denotes intimacy. In this case, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, in the Greek, kurios, kurios. Not everyone who acknowledges that I am Lord. Remember, if we acknowledge Jesus as Lord, that means that he is sovereign over us that he is the master, we are his servants, his subjects, and that we must humble ourselves to his will. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, once again, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? I mean, they're saying, hold on a second. <laughs> Look at us. Look at what we've done. We've operated in the gifts of the Spirit. We've prophesied in your name. We've exercised and driven out demons in your name. We've done mighty works, miracles in your name. And so surely you're not talking about us, right? Because we're the righteous. We are the redeemed. We're going to be saved. We're going to enter into the kingdom. And here's the clincher. Jesus says in verse 23, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you evil doers. Close quote. Now, how do we make sense of this? This seems so contradictory. Jesus is saying, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but those who do the will of my father. That second son said, Lord, Lord, by saying, I will go. To his father. 
He's declaring, yes, I will do your will, but he fails to go into the vineyard. And in like manner here, not everyone who says to me, yes, Lord, I will do your will. I will go into your vineyard. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, acknowledges me as Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And clearly, the second son, while he gave his father lip service, yes, I will go into the vineyard, he failed. He failed to enter into the vineyard. He failed to do the will of the Father. Now, what's interesting about Matthew chapter 7 is when you look at that verse 22. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not perform many mighty works in your name? They're pointing to what they believe to be works that point to the reality that they have done the will of the Father. Look at what we've done. We've prophesied in your name, driven out demons in your name. We've performed many mighty works in your name. So doesn't that count? Doesn't that merit us heaven? Not so fast. This is what's so sobering about it because the group that's being described here, we would consider them to be the God squad. We would consider them to be the holy rollers, God's insiders, those who are operating in the gifts of the Spirit. And yet the Lord declared to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you evildoers. How do we make sense of this? This is so sobering. Well, we need to make a distinction. God commands us to do his will. And to do God's will is not simply a matter of ministry, <laughs> of prophesying in his name and exercising demons in his name and performing many, many mighty works or miracles in his name. Those are all wonderful things, okay? But, but, that does not equate to doing the will of the Father. There are many who operate in the gifts of the Spirit, and yet they are leading immoral lives. Okay, We've seen this. <laughs> we have seen this from the very beginning of Christianity. I mean, just look at, look at Judas as a prime example. Judas, who was counted among the disciples. When Jesus sent out the disciples two by two and they went out, Judas was among them. And Judas performed signs and wonders, healed the sick, drove out demons. He operated in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. I don't know if you've considered this. He was one of the 12. He received authority. And he walked in that anointing and performed all of these things as his fellow disciples did with the authority of Jesus. But yet, but yet, we know that Judas's heart was hardened. We knew that he was stealing from the money purse, the purse that is the money that was collected by the disciples as they traveled from place to place in order to serve the poor, in order to feed the hungry. Judas, we're told in the Gospels, he was stealing from this fund. And so there was avarice and there was greed and he, he was guilty of thievery. What's more, we know how the story ends. He betrays, he sells our Savior for 30 pieces of silver. And so how do we reconcile that? Judas could certainly say, well, Lord, Lord, wait a minute. I prophesied in your name. I drove out demons in your name. You know, I did X, Y, and Z in your name. Surely I'm going to enter into the kingdom. Whoa, 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 whoa. not so fast. Depart from me, you evildoer. I know you not. 
And so we must be very careful, those of us who are intent on practicing our faith, not to fall into that trap, not to believe that because we engage in ministry that somehow our ministry and our good works are going to save us. I mean, we're not saved by our works. Understand that. The church has never taught that. We are saved by Christ, by his grace, by the merits won for us on Calvary. And yes, we are called to do good works. Why? Because faith without works is dead. And it is precisely the grace of God working in our lives that moves us to do good works. That all emanates and flows from God's grace. It's all God. It's all grace. And our cooperation with God's grace. So yes, we're called to engage in good works, but we're not saved by our works. We're not saved by our good deeds. We're not saved by our ministries. And this hits home, my friends. Every time I read these three verses, I'm convicted because it's easy to fall into the trap of believing that, that my ministry is going to save me. Look at all the good that I'm doing. Look at all the souls that I'm reaching, right? Look at all this ministry. And surely the Lord is going to count this, right? He's going to count this towards my righteousness. And that's dangerous, my friends. My ministry is not going to save me. And those mentioned in these verses, they fell into that trap of believing that because they, they said the right prayers, they did the right novenas, they attended enough masses, and they engaged in and operated in the gifts of the Spirit and, and did wonderful ministry, that these reasons amounted to the righteousness and the rewards that were due to them, that they were worthy of the kingdom of heaven, and Jesus stops them dead in their tracks. I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you evildoers. If that does not convict you, then you need to check for a pulse, my friends, because it convicts me. There's a great temptation to believe, to believe what these were mentioned here in these verses, what they mistakenly believed. Jesus calls them out on it. He's warning his disciples. What the Lord is looking for is obedience in all areas of our lives and that we must conform ourselves to God's word and to God's commands, to his statutes. And if we're not living out the commandments, going back to the image of, of the Pharisees and the religious authorities, they were guilty. And I don't want to go down this rabbit hole, get lost here and go off on a tangent, but you remember how Jesus called them out because they, the religious authorities, those who consider themselves to be holier than thou, that they seeking to avoid their responsibility towards their parents. Remember, honor thy mother, thy father, the fourth commandment, that they invented loopholes, loopholes, because as their parents grew older and were reaching advanced age, they had a responsibility. I'm speaking of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, to take care of their parents in their old age. That's part of what it means to obey the fourth commandment, honor thy father, thy mother. Then when they can't care for themselves, it's our responsibility to care for them. Well, guess what? That care costs. And these religious leaders, they found a loophole. They would take their money, their wealth, and they would invest it. They would essentially take that money and they would put it in the treasury of the temple and declare that money to be korban, which means to be dedicated and set aside for God. And it was a sort of escrow. <laughs> they were hiding their money under the pretense of honoring God, but they were 
taking that money, depositing it into the temple treasury so that no one could touch it because now they couldn't use that money to do anything else because it was dedicated to God. It was korban. So in that way, they found a way to absolve themselves of having to provide financially for their parents. Isn't that despicable? And that's what Jesus calls them out on, that hypocrisy of trying to circumvent the law of God to not honor their mothers and fathers as they were duty-bound to do. But instead, they invented this and created this loophole for themselves. This is what Jesus is driving at when he calls the Pharisees out. You can look that up in Mark chapter 7. Furthermore, and I want to point this out, in Matthew chapter 15, verses 7 through 9, we find Jesus calling out the Pharisees and the scribes for their hypocrisy. And he addresses the lip service that they were notoriously engaged in. Verse 7, you hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines, the precepts of men. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. My friends, does that describe you? Does that describe me? Are we guilty of of merely giving the Lord lip service, but yet not conforming our lives to his perfect will? This is the question that we're confronted with. This powerful parable, my friends, provides us with a golden opportunity to search our hearts, to examine our consciences, to ask ourselves, with which of these two sons do we most identify? With which of these two sons in the parable do we most identify, the first or the second? And what is the Lord calling us to? No doubt he's calling each and every one of us to a deepened conversion, to a deepened repentance, a deepened contrition. He's calling us to reform our lives. We're all in the same boat in that respect, my friends. The Lord is calling us to go deeper. So I pray that this reflection, this meditation, that on some level it would lead us to a certain conviction, that it would lead us to a compunction of heart, a true sorrow for our sins. And it would lead us to a certain resolve that we would reform our lives and enter anew into the vineyard of the Lord to do his perfect will, to surrender to the Lord every area and aspect of our lives and to do his will in all areas. That's what God is asking and demanding of us. And he expects nothing less. With that said, why don't we turn to our first reading from the book of the prophet Ezekiel, chapter 18, verses 25 through 32. Now, very briefly here, just to set the context, Ezekiel is writing during the period of the Babylonian exile. He is in exile with his fellow Jews. The Lord has delivered his people. The Lord has delivered Judea into the hands of the Babylonians. He's using the Babylonians to chastise his people, to punish them for their wickedness. Remember, he sent the prophets one after the other to warn the people to repent, to call them to repentance. And yet they did not heed the words of the prophets. They persecuted the prophets. And here Ezekiel, who lived also during the time of the prophet Jeremiah, we've spoken over the last several weeks, we've made mention of Jeremiah and his ministry and how he suffered, how he was persecuted for the sake of the message that he was commanded to deliver. A warning to the people. He was calling them to repentance. 
And here Ezekiel is responding. He's responding to the people of God who are now in bondage, who are now in Babylon, who are now exiled. This is prior to the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. But the people, they are mystified. They're confused. They're downtrodden. They're downcast. They're demoralized. They're depressed. They're in the midst of despair. And they're lamenting. And they're calling God out. They're calling him out as as having been unfair, that he's been unjust. How could he allow this to happen? And here, the prophet is, he's correcting them. He's correcting their faulty theology because they perceive that, that God somehow is being unfair in delivering them into the hands of the Babylonians. How could you do that? We're the chosen people. How could you allow this to happen? And I think that in some measure, you and I can relate to this. I think there are many in the church today who are looking at God and we're shaking our fists saying, how could you allow this mess to happen? Not only are you allowing this mess to happen in the world, but look at the state of the church. There's so much that's going wrong. Lord, how could you let this happen? And so there's a certain sense of despair and the people of God are blaming God for this. And the prophet here is correcting them. And so we pick up here in verse 25. The prophet declares, yet you say the way of the Lord is not just. Hear now, O house of Israel, is my way not just? Is it not your ways that are not just? When a righteous man turns away from his righteousness and commits iniquity, he shall die for it. For the iniquity which he has committed, he shall die. Again, when a wicked man turns away from the wickedness he has committed and does what is lawful and right, he shall save his life. Verse 28, because he considered and turned away from all the transgressions which he had committed, he shall surely live. He shall not die. Verse 29, yet the house of Israel says, the way of the Lord is not just. O house of Israel, are my ways not just? Is it not your ways that are not just? Close quote. And so here, the Lord through his prophet, through his servant, setting the record straight. No, you cannot blame God for this. God, in his mercy, in his kindness, sent prophet after prophet to warn you to turn away from your wickedness. They had begun to chase after idols. They began to live like the pagans lived. And because of that, because of their profanation of the temple, because of their idolatry, because they were living immoral lives and had departed from the ways of the Lord, the Lord sent prophet after prophet to warn them of the chastisement to come. And they did not heed the prophets, but they rejected the prophets. They persecuted the prophets. They made the prophets to suffer. And in certain cases, they put the prophets to death. And so this warning delivered to them through the benevolence and mercy of God, this fell on deaf ears. They rejected it. And because they rejected God and his merciful actions and his merciful overtures, the Lord, he delivered his justice. And he allowed the Babylonians to conquer Judea and to take the Jews into captivity. And so no, the prophet delivers this message to them. It's because of your actions. It's because of your wickedness. God is not unfair. You have been unfaithful. And because of your infidelity, because of your lack of faithfulness 
in doing God's will, again, connecting it to the gospel, because of this, you shall perish. And he points to the example of the individual, the individual who turns from his righteousness and commits sinful acts, rebels against God. The prophet declares he shall surely die. He's going to be held responsible for his actions. And conversely, the wicked person who turns from his wicked ways and embraces a path of righteousness, he shall surely live. And so it boils down to our individual response to God's invitation, to his command. And depending on how we respond to that invitation, that is going to determine our ultimate destiny. And so this was a lesson for the people of God. It's still a lesson for us today. We cannot simply shake our fist at heaven and say, this is all your fault. No, we must accept responsibility for our actions. We're given a choice. We're given free will to choose. And we who choose to depart from righteousness and to engage in immorality, we shall surely die as well. And so this passage underscores has been chosen perfectly and paired with today's gospel to underscore this message that god is not unjust quite the opposite he's merciful and he reaches out to us as he does through his only begotten son in the gospel as he did prior to sending his son through john the baptist to warn us to repent of our wicked ways to reform our lives and so jesus delivers this message this message to the chief priests and the elders that many people write off. He said they, they think to themselves, well, this is a message of condemnation. But when you read the gospel, my friends, read it carefully. Because it says, truly I say to you, this is going back to verse 31, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the harlots go into the kingdom of God before you. So the Lord does not close the door on these religious leaders. Yes, this is a stinging indictment, but hopefully members of the religious class that they will repent of their sinfulness, repent of their rank hypocrisy, and turn to the Lord. And we know that for the vast majority of them, sadly, they did not repent. But their hearts were further hardened. And they were then led to conspire against Jesus, conspire to put him to death. And they succeeded in that endeavor to condemn him and to crucify him, with the notable exceptions of Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea and others. But yet the vast majority continued along that trajectory we all run the risk of living like chief priests and elders like pharisees and getting caught up in our own hubris in our own egotism and pride and we can get lost in that my friends and so if we believe ourselves to be truly righteous and just we need to repent of that spiritual pride and this has been a theme that the lord has been unpacking for us over the last several episodes over the last several sundays and I pray that you take it to heart as much as I'm taking it to heart. I am being convicted. I'm being challenged. The Lord is dealing with me, and I, I really hope that you open yourselves up to that. These readings just further underscore the Lord's message to his people. Let's move on very quickly to our responsorial psalm, which is taken from Psalm 25. And the response is, remember your mercies, O Lord. Remember your mercies, O Lord. And this is beautifully beautifully selected and appropriately chosen for this collection of readings, given that, once again, we're speaking about the mercy of the Lord. Verse 4, Make me to know thy ways, O Lord. Teach me thy paths. Verse 5, Lead me in thy truth and teach me, 
for thou art the God of my salvation. For thee I wait all the day long. Verse 8. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore he instructs sinners in the way. Verse 9. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. Verse 10. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. I repeat that again, verse 10. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. Verse 14. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. Close quote. That's Psalm 25. A psalm extolling the mercy of God and calling us to fidelity, to faithfulness, to the commands and the testimonies and the covenant of the Lord. Praise God. Now, in conclusion, what I'd like to do is cite, as is my custom, two brief but relevant passages from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. The first passage I'd like to cite is paragraph 1431, which states, and I quote, Interior repentance is a radical reorientation of our whole life, a return, a conversion to God with all our heart, an end of sin, a turning away from evil with repugnance toward the evil actions we have committed. I want to stop there. I'm going to repeat this once again. Think about the meaning of interior repentance. What does it mean to repent interiorly? What does true repentance look like? And apply this to yourself. Apply this to your own life. Does this describe what is taking place right here and right now in your life? Because conversion is a lifelong process. It's not a one-shot deal. It's not a one and done. But this happens over the course of our lives. And if you and I are not engaged in this process of constant conversion, then we're not doing Christianity right. That's not living out the gospel. That's not living out true discipleship. And so I'm going to read this first sentence of this paragraph once again, and I want you to ask yourselves, as I ask myself, is this a reality in my own life? Am I living this out? Quote, interior repentance is a radical reorientation of our whole life, a return, a conversion to God with all our heart, an end of sin, a turning away from evil with repugnance toward the evil actions we have committed. It continues. At the same time, it entails the desire and resolution to change one's life with hope in God's mercy and trust in the help of his grace. This conversion of heart is accompanied by a salutary pain and sadness, which the fathers called animi cruciatus, affliction of spirit, and compunctio cordis, repentance of heart. Close quote. And so this describes interior repentance, what true repentance looks like. We are lifelong, my friends, lifelong penitents. As I said before, this is not a one-shot deal. But over the course of our lives, we grow in our capacity to repent, to repent of our sins. And the Catechism here describes the conversion of heart, which is accompanied by a salutary pain, a healthful pain, a good pain, 
and sadness, which the fathers called animi cruciatus, affliction of spirit. And we as lifelong penitents must grow in our capacity to ask the Lord to tenderize our hearts so that we would experience it, that we would feel this sadness, this salutary pain, this animi cruciatus, this affliction of spirit. And compunctio cordis, this repentance of heart. And the saints teach us that the deeper, the deeper we immerse ourselves in the spiritual life, in the way of perfection, the more we're going to experience this compunction of heart, this salutary pain, this affliction of spirit. And if we're not currently experiencing that, and if we are not continually experiencing that over the course of our progression towards the Lord, then there's something wrong. And I think that each and every one of us, myself especially, myself included, (laughs) quite especially, that we certainly can grow in this area of true interior repentance. I mean, this is part of what it means to grow in holiness. And so that's paragraph 1431. The next paragraph that I want to share with you is the very next paragraph, 1432. And with this, I close. The human heart is heavy and hardened. God must give man a new heart. And that's a reference to Ezekiel 36, verses 26 through 27. God must give man a new heart. Conversion is first of all a work of the grace of God who makes our hearts return to him. Then it quotes Lamentations 5.21, Restore us to thyself, O Lord, that we may be restored. God gives us the strength to begin anew. It is in discovering the greatness of God's love that our heart is shaken by the horror and weight of sin and begins to fear offending God by sin and being separated from him. The human heart is converted by looking upon him whom our sins have pierced. That's a reference to John 19.37 and Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. This paragraph concludes by citing St. Clement of Rome. Quote, Let us fix our eyes on Christ's blood and understand how precious it is to his Father. For, poured out for our salvation, it has brought to the whole world the grace of repentance. Close quote. Once again, in anticipation of the sacred liturgy that we will celebrate on this 26th Sunday in Ordinary Time, in anticipation of our reception of the precious body and blood, soul and divinity of our Lord, let us be mindful. As the Catechism stated earlier, let us be mindful. Let us behold the one whom we have pierced. Let us contemplate the blood that was shed for our salvation. Let us behold the crucified one. In doing so, we are led to what? Repentance for our sins. Why? Because it was precisely our sins which crucified our Lord. We crucified Jesus by our sins. And so as we contemplate, as we behold the one whom we have pierced with our sins, may this lead us to a compunction of heart. May this lead us to an affliction of spirit. May this lead us to that salutary pain that will lead us to repent of our sins and beg the mercy of God. And if this requires that we confess our sins in the sacrament of penance, please, I beg you to do so. 
in order that we might worthily receive the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus in the Holy Eucharist. But nevertheless, even for those of us who are in a state of grace, who are not mired in mortal sin, that we would be led, as we prepare for this Holy Eucharist, that we would be led to a deepened conversion, that we would approach the throne of grace this Sunday, mindful of the many venial sins that we have committed, and that we would feel compunction, that we would feel sorrow in our hearts for even those small sins, and that when we enter into the liturgy and participate in the penitential rite, when we beat our breasts, expressing sorrow and contrition, that we might truly enter into that contrition and so be reconciled and healed of those sins by the reception of the Holy Communion, the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus. Because I hope you recognize that that Holy Communion, our participation in the Holy Eucharist, it heals. It heals us of and forgives us of our venial sins. That's the power of the Eucharist. Again, making a distinction. Receiving the Holy Eucharist in a state of mortal sin only compounds our sinfulness because we are not allowed to receive the Holy Eucharist unworthily. And so we must examine ourselves. And those of us who are in a state of grace, but yet mindful of the small, lesser, or venial sins, we should become recollected every week mindful of the grace that God offers to us and that through Holy Communion that we are healed of, those sins are forgiven us. We confess them in the Confidior when we participate in the penitential rite and by reception of Holy Communion, those venial sins are washed away and healed. And so, my friends, with this said, this brings our episode to a close. As always, my fervent hope and prayer is that this podcast series has been and continues to be a source of inspiration, edification, and spiritual nourishment for you. If it has been, praise God for that. I want to encourage you, those of you who are viewing via our YouTube channel, please be sure to like and subscribe to the channel. By liking and subscribing, you indicate to YouTube that there's value in this content, and they're more apt to push these videos out to more and more viewers. And that's the whole point of this channel. It exists to make Christ known. So please like and be sure to subscribe to the channel. Hit that big red subscribe button. What's more, for those of you who'd like to take a step further, if this podcast has indeed blessed you, then I encourage you to consider partnering with me in making this podcast a blessing for others. You can do so by becoming a co-producer of this podcast, by becoming a patron. Speaking of patrons, I want to thank my amazing community of patrons. Without their support and encouragement and partnership, I wouldn't be able to do this ministry that I so love. And so if you're interested in partnering with me and supporting this endeavor, visit patreon.com forward slash Hector Molina. On that page, you'll see a number of different levels of patronage, of giving, and for as little as a few dollars a month, you can become a patron. And by becoming a patron, you enable us to continue this work, not only to continue it, but to expand our reach in order to make Christ known, in order to share the glorious gospel of our Lord, in order to evangelize. So please consider becoming a patron today. Once again, patreon.com forward slash Hector Molina. And with that said, my friends, until we gather again next week to consider the readings for the 27th Sunday in Ordinary Time, my fervent prayer continues to be for you. In the words of the Apostle Paul, in Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, may the word of God continue to richly dwell in you. God love you.